Have you beheld the holy God this morning? That's not really convincing. All right? All right. Have you beheld the holy God this morning? No, there we go. Have we sung worship to the great and mighty one who has created us, whose son has died for us, and whose spirit lives within us? And so a wonderful day to gather together to sing praises and to worship. Good to see everyone here this morning. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is page 1,214. If you need to use the Bible, there's one under a chair in the row ahead of you. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Back in chapter 6, Paul repeatedly asked the rhetorical question of the church at Corinth, do you not know? Do you not know? And again and again and again, we are faced as we come to the Scripture and what it says to us as we seek to understand, especially its application to our life, when you come to the difficulties in life, sometimes as a pastor, you want to say to people in the chairs, no more pews, you want to say to people in the chairs, do you not know? Don't you know yet? Don't you know what the Bible says about this? And we don't usually say that because that's a hard thing to hear. So it's easier to say it when I'm preaching than when I'm talking to you individually. But I say that to you when I'm preaching because it's in the Word of God. And I also want you to be challenged with the idea of how much of the Bible do you not yet know? And I don't, mem- I don't mean necessarily all of the specific information so that at church game night, you can take on Geno Phillips and beat him in Bible trivia. Because I'm not talking about all of the details of every name and every place and every date and all of those things. I'm talking mostly and most importantly about the theology of the Scripture. If we don't know the theology of the Bible, Old Testament as well as New, then when we come to the challenges of our life, we do not know the answers. And so then when we go off course, the pastor will come to you and say, do you not know that that's wrong? Do you not know that that's not what you're supposed to be doing? Do you not know the answer to this question? And so if you're older than I am, you have no excuse unless you were recently saved. If you've been saved since a child and grew up in church, you'll say, well, I'm not a pastor. That's true. But Paul was not writing to pastors, was he? I mean, he was writing to the elders at Corinth as well, but he's writing to the whole church. Do you not know? Because for 18 months, he had taught them all. Not all as much as others, but he had taught them these things. And so when he says, do you not know, it's because he's taught them to them. And so if they're in the word of God, we should know them. And and therefore, the Bible reading challenge and all the things that go along with that are so important so that we come to things in our lives and we say, oh, I do know what the Bible says about that. And it's not always easy. It's not always simple. But we need to know the word of God. And that's our problem. Our problem is we don't know. And because we don't know the scriptures, we think that God's word has no answers or direction for many of the situations we face in life. We think as we face the situations, we just have to face them with our own human understanding because we don't know the Bible has actually addressed it because we don't know the Bible. And so we have to search the scriptures daily to know the scriptures. And so because we have not studied the Bible well, and because we do not trust God to give us all we need for living a godly life, we fall back on our own understanding, or we fall back on conventional wisdom, or even sometimes, worse than that, the counsel of the wicked. So it doesn't have to be this way. In fact, it must not be this way if we are to live lives worthy of being imitated by a hurting and broken world. I said this not long ago, and I got it from someone else, I don't remember who. God's word is far, far better than you think it is. 
It's far, far better. It has far more answers than you think it does. It is better. So before we dig into our passage, let's pray this morning. Father, convince us of that truth, that not only is your word all we need for life and godliness, but it does have these answers to our situations. It is better, far better than we think, that we might trust you, trust it, run to it, understand it, and apply it to our lives. And to do that this morning, Lord, we need the work of your Spirit to work in us. Please do that for your namesake, for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 7, we're going to start in verse 8. I'll read 8 through 16. Please follow along. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? It's interesting to end the reading on a question. Sounds kind of odd, but we're going to stop there this morning. This is God's word given to us for our good and our benefit this morning. May we listen to it. The theme is this. God's word has answers for all marriage situations. Sometimes all doesn't mean all the way we wish all meant. This time it does. Okay, God's word has answers for all marriage situations. There is not a situation, a marriage situation, found in the world today that God's word does not speak to, does not give answers and direction to. And so we have to understand that, we have to trust that, and then we come to the scripture, seeing what God has to say about our situations and our questions and our struggles. In this letter, Paul is now dealing with the matters that the Corinthian church wrote to him about. The first issue, back in verse 1 of this chapter, is a slogan that was being used by some in Corinth. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And in addressing that issue, Paul wrapped up his answer back in verse 7 by saying this, Each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Now Paul is going to address each of those gifts because each of those gifts is a condition of life having to do with being married or unmarried. So each one has his gift, either single, unmarried, or married. Each one has his own gift from God. And now he's going to go into talking about each of those gifts as they're being played out in a very real church with very real people who have very real problems in their own marriages. So this is not theoretical. This is absolutely practical because Paul is dealing with real people with real problems. And so we need to see what it has to say. Paul's main point, his main idea, it's actually the main idea of the entire chapter. His main idea is this, remain in the condition in which you were called. It doesn't look so much like that in the first seven verses, but now as we get in, into verses eight 
And then following, we'll talk much more about this next week, remain in the condition in which you were called. That's the idea. Which means whatever situation God has assigned to you, when you became a Christian, stay in it. Now, again, we're going to talk more about what that means next week, specifically in verses 17 through 24, because 17 to 24 are in the middle of the chapter, and they're actually the hinge that makes sense of really what came before, what we've been studying last week and this week, and then what comes later. Remain in the condition. Stay in the place that, God, that you were when God called you to salvation. And all of that now ties in specifically to this instruction on marriage. Now, there are three basic types of marriage situations that encompass all of humanity. Three basic types. Now, it's, some of you are going to say, well, there's other situations that you didn't address. Well, it's depending on how you define marriage. But there are three basic marriage situations that encompass every person. There are singles or unmarried people. When I say unmarried, I mean anyone who for any reason is unmarried. And then we have Christian marriages where both husband and wife are Christians. And then we have mixed marriages um, where there are one, there's one husband and one wife. <laughs> that, that's what a marriage is, by the way. So if you take anything else, <laughs> if you take anything else, it's not a marriage as defined by God. So if you want to call anything else marriage, if that's not one man and one woman, then it's not really marriage. So we're, de we're defining it scripturally, biblically, as what marriage is. But a mixed marriage is where one spouse is a believer and one's an unbeliever. Now, that does leave room for marriages where both uh, spouses are unbelievers. But because Paul's writing to a church, he's writing to Christians, he's dealing with at least one spouse who is a believer. And so I guess I should have had a fourth category, but he's not going to address that because Paul doesn't write the Bible. God doesn't write the Bible uh, for, the, for the benefit in the sense of daily benefit for people who don't believe in God. When you try to take the Scripture and apply them to unbelievers, they might be helpful and they have the truth, but they're not going to apply because they don't trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and they don't submit to His Word. And so he's not addressing that. He's addressing this to a church. So within a church context, there are three marriage, uh, three marriage situations. The first group we find in verses 8 and 9. So Paul, first of all, addresses the unmarried and widows. Who are the unmarried? The reason we have to ask who are the unmarried is because we know who widows are. Everyone knows what a widow is or a widower. Uh, a widow is someone who was formerly married but whose spouse has passed away. And so we have unmarried and widows, which means we have, in a sense, Paul addressing kind of two categories. These unmarried are not widows, yet they are single as Paul is, as he makes clear in verse, um, in verse 8 there. I believe here... My understanding is this, that this is referring to those who have never married, as well as those who are currently divorced. It could be that specifically here, he's only addressing people who are currently divorced, because later in the chapter, he starts talking in some translations, in verse 25 and following, of people who are unmarried, and, and the word is sometimes translated virgins, and so those who are never married. So here we have the unmarried, we have the never married, and we have widows. But I believe for sure it's talking about divorced people, if not all unmarried people. And so I'm going to take it as a general case to all unmarried people, married before and now widowed, or never married at all. Paul's advice to this group, the unmarried and widows, is stay single. Stay single. Now the reason I consider this advice is that he doesn't give a charge here. He says, to the unmarried and widows, I say. In verse 10 he says, to the married, I give this charge. And then to the rest, 
I say, and I believe that 12 is a charge as well. But here, I see this more as uh, godly advice. And that's consistent with what he's going to talk about in verses 25 and following. So in 8 and 9, we get a very short address. And then in verses 25 through 35, you get way more information as it broadens out. I told you that the best way to look at chapter um, 7 is to read all of it and understand all of it at one time. Because if you don't, you're left with some unanswered questions that are going to be answered later. So at your own leisure, read ahead. It's okay. And, uh, and, and look ahead for some of these answers. The Paul's advice is this, to stay single. Now, in verse 25, he says that he has no command from the Lord on this matter. That's why I consider it advice. To unmarried people, he says stay single, but that's advice, not command. Because later he's going to say it's okay if you marry, and he's going to go through much more information. Now, Paul has already made it clear in verse 6 that he wishes that every, everyone was as he was. And what's Paul's condition? Verse 8. Single. He wishes that everyone was single as he was. He's going to talk about why later in the chapter. And now he says it is good for those who are single to remain single. Now, I hope, and I know some of you have already come to this position, I hope that bothers you. I hope that you have some theological tension as you hear this given, because I hope you know enough about the Old Testament to know this doesn't seem to match up well with all of the rest of Scripture. In fact, even other things that Paul has written on this topic. So I hope you're, you're a little frustrated because the rest of the Bible seems to indicate the opposite. Where the rest of the Bible says to be married or, or highlights married or marriage or encourages you to be married. Now again, we're going to get to this in a couple weeks and deal with all of this in specific. But I will point to one other place that Paul addressed. So in writing to widows and marriage he gave apparently, seemingly contradictory advice in 1 Timothy chapter 5. So here he says to unmarried and widows, stay single. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, what does he say in verse 14? So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. That's 1 Timothy 5.14. To older widows, he gives really no point either way in 1 Timothy 5, but to younger widows, he does not say stay single as I am. He says, get married. And so the reason why it appears contradictory is because Paul's addressing two different situations, and therefore his advice is, is different in different situations. So if you don't understand the context, it will sound contradictory, but it's not. What Paul is doing is understanding that there is not a one-size-fits-all scenario when it comes to marriage. It's just not that simple. Have you recognized that in your own experience? It's just not as simple as we wish it was, especially when it comes to complicating matters such as a spouse that has passed away or an unbelieving spouse or I'm single but I want to be married or I'm single and I don't want to be married, all of these kind of questions. So now to this advice of stay single, Paul gives the exception. The exception is clear in verse 9. He uses but. The exception is this, that they lack self-control, get married. His advice is stay single, but he gives an exception. And what's the exception? They should marry. The question is, why should they marry? Well, he makes it clear here. It is better to marry than to burn with passion. That's the big question. What does it mean to burn with passion? There's, a, there's different ways of saying this, but I link it back to the exercising self-control. If you cannot exercise self-control, you should marry because a lack of self-control is connected to burning with passion. 
The reason you can't exercise self-control is because you have a passion and you're burning with it. And if you connect those in the ideas of being married or being single, I think you can make the understandable references here. If you are lacking self-control because you're burning with passion, this is a sexual passion. This is a strong desire for sexual relations, and you're not able to control that by, uh, in, in your situation, so it's better to marry. That's Paul's point. Now, I want to say this. If exercising self-control and not burning with passion, so I have self-control, and I'm not burning with passion. They're the opposites of the problem because here's the problem. You lack self-control. You burn with passion. What's the solution? Marry. That's it. Now, therefore, the prerequisite for staying single for the gift of what some call singleness or being unmarried for life, the prerequisite for that are the opposites. You must have self-control and you must not burn with passion. If we put those categories onto society, onto the church, onto Christians, how many currently single Christians should stay single? So if the, if the prerequisites are this, if the prerequisites are, I have self-control and I do not burn with sexual passion, strong sexual desire, therefore I have the gift of singleness. Each one has his own gift. If we have those as prerequisites, then the amount of people who should be considering whether they have the gift of singleness or not goes down to about what? In a culture, though, where singleness is emphasized and encouraged throughout culture, and that has infiltrated the evangelical church, so that when I look up sermons on this very passage, I sometimes get, from people I respect, three or four paragraphs on the beauty and the wonderful nature of singleness. And then I wonder how many singles out in the congregation are people who are having self-control and not burning with sexual desire. Because the vast, vast majority of Christian singles are lacking self-control and burning with sexual passion, and now they're told that they might have to get to singleness, and it might be a good thing. That's not what Paul says here. Now, if you have that gift, you should have, you must have self-control and not have that burning passion. And there are singles who have that. Some of you might be in this room. I don't know. I haven't had that many conversations about this personally. But there are people I know who fit that category. But the vast majority of singles sitting in churches do not fit that category. And in a sex-obsessed sex and sex-saturated uh, culture like Corinth, just think how many fit that category there. So the exception in this case might be far greater than the rule, <laughs> especially in our culture. Now, what I want to do here is I want to address some very concerning teaching and trends in evangelicalism because of what I just said about the emphasis on the beauty and wonder of singleness and why we should minister much to singles and welcome singles and talk to singles and all of this. So although being married and unmarried are equal gifts, they are not gifts equally distributed. Each one is equally valid and wonderful and glorious by God. Every gift that God gives is equally wonderful in the sense of it's wonderful because it's God's gift. But not all gifts are equally distributed. What I mean by that is it's wonderful to be single if that's God's gift. It's wonderful to be married if it's God's gift. But there are not as many singles who have that gift as marrieds who have that gift. And I believe the Bible lays that out clearly. The teaching of the Scripture stresses the normativity uh, of lifelong marriage, not lifelong or even prolonged singleness. That teaching of the normativity of singleness goes against the grain of the teaching of Scripture. 
So go back to Genesis chapter 2, and you'll find the dominion mandate. And that mandate demands that the vast majority of people marry and bear more than 2.1 children. Replacement rate, that's what I'm giving you. In a culture where most of your children will survive, which is far different than uh, the last 5,900 years, now in the last 100 years, our infant mortality rate has, has greatly decreased. In that place, you have to have at least 2.1 children to replace yourself and your spouse. And so if that's true, if we're going to take dominion, if we're going to multiply and fill the earth for more than it is filled already, then we have to have much larger families normatively. And then for every single person, someone out there has got to have 4.2 children. Right? So look around. We got you know, five singles here. Some of you need to step up that are married. You got to have more kids. We've got to keep the rate up. That's the idea. So normatively speaking, the vast majority to fulfill God's command are going to be married and are going to have more than two kids. And this means that everyone, I believe everyone sitting here, should assume the gift of marriage. The gift of marriage should be assumed from the dominion mandate unless God makes it clear otherwise. So how would you know that you have the minority, not less important gift? I've already said it. You were able to exercise self-control while unmarried. You were able to refrain from all sexual activity, including pornography, with contentment. With contentment, satisfied, happy. I am fine not having sexual relations. I don't need pornography. I don't need replacements. I can live the rest of my life in celibacy and in service to the Lord, pure. If that's you, then you are in the vast minority of people on this earth, including Christians. And if God has given you that gift and you are currently single, you should seriously consider if that's where God wants you and then act accordingly. If that's not you and you're single, then what should you do? There you go. You go. So the idea, again, we'll get to this later in the chapter. This gift of singleness is given because God wants you to dedicate yourself to serving the Lord with the majority of your free time. Now, this is the part where most people don't talk about the gift of singleness because the gift of singleness is placed into a context of I like my singleness because I have more money, more time to please myself. And the gift of singleness in the scripture is you have more money and more time to serve the Lord. So if you don't want to do that either, then get married, have kids, and serve the family. So this is the way the Bible talks. Okay, so if you're single here, you've got some real practical application. Now, also remember that the reason Paul is even talking about this is that he has very serious concerns about sexual immorality. And I believe that one of the solutions that we must consider in our day and age to sexual immorality is to get married younger. I want you to write that down, whether you're a grandparent, great-grandparent, or you're 12 years old, or six. Get married sooner. That's my answer to sexual morality. Why is that? Well, we need to aim for marriage at 22 instead of 28. I think 28 right now is the average age of first marriages. Aim for 22 instead of 28. Most of you here who are over 40 probably were married first time before the age of 24, if not 22. Most of you, if you're over the age of 70, were married by 22, if not 18. How does that work? Well, it works that our, our, our society was different, our culture was different, and people's ideas of when to marry and why to marry were different than they are now. 
I believe one of the answers is get married younger. Aim for marriage at 20. I'm also saying to you, parents and young people, aim for marriage at 18. I just let that sit for just a second. <laughs> Judah, how old are you? He's, 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 he's not checking with mom. Wait, wait a second. You're late, man. You're late. You should already be. No, I'm just kidding. Aim for marriage at 18. And when I say that to a congregation of people, I know because I have a child older than 18. We say, I wrote it down here in quotations. This is what your reaction is. That's insane. But I say this back. It didn't used to be. Didn't used to be insane to be married at 18. It used to be pretty normative. Like you were, you were an, old, an old maid at 22 if you weren't married. And now you're insane if you're married at 22 because just fill in all the blanks of why you should marry later. That's the secular, that's the ungodly culture speaking to us and we're buying in and we're raising our kids to buy in and then we wonder why our kids are sexually impure between the age of uh, adolescence, puberty, and maturity until they get married. And I say this to you because if you don't start planning for them to marry at 18 when they're 12, they'll never be married at 18 when you start thinking about it when they're, when they're 18 <laughs> or when they're 17. Now it's a little late because you weren't planning. If you're thinking, my kid doesn't need to be ready for marriage until they're 22 or 25, it widens the time of maturity. And then you wonder why they're living in your basement when they're 26 because now you want them out. You didn't prepare them to be married at 18 because you weren't thinking like this because this thinking is insane. Now, I know it's insane, but it's only insane in the last 40 years, which means for all of humanity before that, this was pretty easy to say. In fact, it was normative. So who's insane? The people who just think they're insane now for 40 years or everyone who would be insane for the last, you know, whatever it was, 5,900 years? So, now one of the reasons I say this, well, another response is kids aren't mature at 18. Have you recognized that? Have you run into some 18-year-olds? Now, I just want to say this publicly. Judah is a very mature 18-year-old. And uh, I say that publicly. And uh, so I think he's right on track for marriage, maybe 19 or 20 at this age, because he's got a couple years down to kind of let that sink in. Kids aren't mature at 18. And I would say this back. You're right. They aren't mature at 18. Whose fault is that? Are you going to raise your kids to be mature at 18? Are you raising your kids to be mature enough to be married at 18? Now, I'm not saying everyone should marry at 18. Now, I'm going to start throwing in the nuance. I just let it sit for a while. I'm not saying you should marry that young. I'm not saying everyone should marry that young. You wait for God to guide and direct, but you should be planning on being ready for marriage at that age. I have a 12-year-old still living at home. He has six years, actually five and a half years, to marriageable age. I have five and a half years, and that freaks Tracy out every time I say it. But I say it to her, and I say it to me, because if we don't have that mindset, we'll think we've got much more time than we have. He's got five and a half years to be able to lead a family, to be able to hold down a full-time job, and to provide for himself. If we don't have that mindset, they'll never get there. And what happens then, and notice the connection here, your children are getting married at 28. They reached sexual maturity at 12. How many years of purity do you expect them to have? 12 to 28, 16 years of overcoming the temptation of sexual immorality, burning with passion, and we know kids of that age lacking self-control. What are we thinking? We are setting our kids up 
for failure when we tell them you should wait till you get a college degree, you should wait until you graduate, you should wait until you have a good career, you should wait until you have a bunch of money and have bought your house, you should wait for all those things, and then marry. What are they going to be doing that whole time when they burn with passion and lack self-control? They're going to be doing what they're doing, and you guys all know what it is because you were there one time. You know the temptation. You know the struggle. Notice this. I just looked this up this morning to make sure. I didn't even realize how bad it was. The average age of sexual maturity in 1920 was 16 years old. And then kids married at what age? 18. They had two years. Now the average age of sexual maturity is below 12. And they're getting married at 28. Do you see the problem? Now this is hardcore, just straight up practical. You're going to search the scripture. Where does it say you have to marry at 18? It doesn't. But all of these things that the Bible talks about us should point us in a certain direction. And when we fight against the direction of the scripture and the normative uh, pointing of scripture, then we're fighting against the current of how God made the world, how God made humanity. And then we wonder why our problems are so terrible. There are so many broken things, even among Christians who think they're doing the right thing biblically. Have I said enough? I thought about not having any more in this sermon and just spending another 10 or 15 minutes on singleness and all the problems with it in our culture. And not just the culture out there, the culture in here. We have got to do things different. We have got to change what we do or we're going to keep reaping the same results and worse. Are you with me? So raise your kids differently. I haven't read it, but I've got it on my shelf. I should be reading it now. It's a book by Vody Bauckham that says what he should be if he wants to marry my daughter. All I have is sons. I don't have to worry about having, uh, you know, good Christian husbands for my daughters. But I need to find good Christian women, uh, young ladies for my sons. But what must they be to marry? You know, if they want to marry Vody Bauckham's daughter, and I think he still has some that might be young enough, then I need to prepare them. And then I need to send a text message or email over there to him and uh, see what we can do. Again, when you don't put things in your notes, it's better probably not to say them. Amen. And you can send this to Vody and let him know. He doesn't know who I am, but he does know Marv Plementosh because Marv knows everybody. But anyway, that's a side story. So maybe Marv can send it to him. So here's the idea. Most of us grew up in a culture that is not even, is not even close to what the sex-saturated, sex-obsessed culture of our day is. And we were getting sexually mature later in life and marrying sooner. And now in this culture, what have we done? The problem is exacerbated on every level. And then people are getting married, filled with sexual regret, sexual sin, shame, brokenness, and misery. And one of the things is because we have not prepared them for marriage. If your children are not being prepared to think about marriage from the time they turn 12 or the time they turn six, then you're not preparing them. It's marriage. We don't date. We get ready to marry. Does that mean you might date? Of course. I'm not going to go crazy with all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to try to lay heavy burdens on you about, you know, courting and what that looks like. You've got to figure that out. But the whole purpose for any of it must be marriage or we've missed the boat. It must be marriage. And we must be marriage as soon as possible, as soon as it is wise, as soon as it is good. And so prepare for that. Okay. That leads me to another thing, another application. 
Short engagements. Short engagements. Do not prolong the time between a commitment to marry and the making of that covenant. This is a time of great temptation. Shorten it for the sake of purity. Now, this might necessitate a simpler wedding ceremony. What's more important, the perfect wedding or a wedding grounded in purity and a marriage founded on purity? Well, we have to take two years to plan the perfect wedding. Our culture is obsessed with the ceremony and who cares about the marriage? When the Bible says we should be obsessed with the marriage and the ceremony is just like the front door. It's just the first thing. It's just day one. Now, it should be wonderful and, and magnificent as much as you want to do it. I, I'm not going to say much more about that, but it can be very, very simple and very, very affordable so that someone like Fred and Elaine Pratt at the age of 18 and 17, I don't know how old you guys were, like 18 or 13 or something. Um, <laughs> no, they were both 18, I think. Um, right? 18, both of you? 17. I thought so. Okay. I knew there was something there. 18 and 17. Didn't, did you even have a job, Fred? A week before he got married, he got a job, all right? I don't recommend that necessarily. But the thing about that is they had no home. They had no stuff. They just had a job. We're getting married anyway. And then people give them their second, third-hand stuff. They get into a one-bedroom house or apartment or live with mom and dad for a while in the right way because they're preparing to move out. And this is the way we do it so that Fred and Elaine can have all of these years of marriage with children born early and sooner rather than later and all of these things fit into place and people didn't think they were crazy, but now we would think they were crazy because we have to wait for all of these things. And so what happens is you say, I found the woman I want to marry. I found the man God has for me to marry. Let's make that commitment and let's plan to get married as soon as feasibly possible so that we shorten the temptation because we must be concerned with sexual morality. It is an overarching, pervasive danger within the church, and we are not thinking even at all, hardly practically, about how to solve some of these solutions. You want more craziness? Talk to me after the service. We'll get into more stuff. You think I don't have more? I've got more. All right? We've got to be there. Now, Paul addresses Christian marriages, and I need to move a lot faster. I mean, it doesn't mean talking faster, Isaac, right? This move faster, talk slower. <laughs> How do we know that Paul is talking to Christians, married to Christians here, starting in verse 10? He says, to the married, I give this charge. We say, well, that doesn't mean it's to Christians. Well, it, it does mean that if you look at verse 12, because he says, to the rest. We have unmarried and widows, one category. We have married, and then we have married, married to unbelievers as the rest. Christians married to unbelievers. So if we have mixed marriages, we have singles, then these people must both be Christians. Christians married to Christians. Christ's command is do not divorce. Christ's command, do not divorce. This is a charge, not from Paul, but from the Lord. That's why he says, to the married, I give this charge, but this is a charge not from Paul, it's a charge from the Lord. Why does Paul make that differentiation? Is because Paul is quoting from Matthew 19. He's quoting from Matthew 19, and, and, and for sake of time, I'm not going to turn there. Matthew 19, three through nine, this is Paul summarizing what Jesus Christ taught about marriage and divorce. This is a command straight from the lips of Christ. The wife should not separate, and the husband should not divorce his wife. That's what he's saying. Now, Paul is not giving new revelation here. He is simply reiterating and applying what Christ taught. And there's no difference to the word separate and divorce, even though they are different words in the original language. 
They both mean the same thing of divorce because he's not saying, well, you can separate without divorce, that's okay, and divorce is something different. What he's saying is that typically in the Hebrew and Greek cultures of the day, a wife did not have the legal authority to divorce the husband. She couldn't send the husband away. Think about that. So in some of your translations, it might say, um, she, uh, the wife should not leave her husband and the husband should not put away his wife. And so put away is, is the put away of divorce, Deuteronomy 24. And the leave is to be uh, sent, sent away or, or, to, or to go away on your own. But So the, the wife in that culture did not have the authority. So now, typically, if a wife says, I'm tired of this marriage, I want out, I'm going to divorce you, she has the right to say, get out of my house. And a lot of times it's the husband that leaves. Well, there was no authority like that in, in the good old days. I mean, in the, those old days. The only the husband could put the wife away. The wife could leave, but the husband had the wife had no legal authority. We've talked about that, and so that's the difference of the words. It both both of those are divorce words. For a woman to divorce her husband, a wife to divorce her husband in those days, she would simply have to to leave and file for divorce. She couldn't put him out. He would put her away filing for divorce. That makes sense. So that's the situation here. Definitely, the separation is divorce. Notice a couple things here, which is fascinating in the Bible. Marriage equality. I mentioned this last week. These commands apply equally to both a wife and a husband. And this was absolutely countercultural and completely transformational to Christian society. Both husband and wife are equally commanded in the same way. This is unbelievably transformational to society. Secondly, divorce, even an unbiblical divorce, ends a marriage. I want you to see this clearly because of some bad teaching, even with, among Reformed and, and evangelicals. The wife is unmarried. Did you notice that? When a divorce happens, that leads to the wife being unmarried. It doesn't say married in the eyes of God or still just separated. It's unmarried. If you divorce, you are now unmarried. In whose eyes? Everybody's eyes. The state, the church, your former spouse, and God. When you divorce, you are now unmarried. You are not married in God's eyes or still kind of married or still halfway married. Therefore, how this works out and why this is important is because if you were still married in God's eyes but unmarried in the eyes of, of the civil government, then what happens if you were to, say, have sexual relations with one another? In God's eyes, it's holy. In the eyes of civil government, it's, it's fornication or adultery. No, it's over. And therefore, we can't just keep cohabitating, saying, well, you know, I know it's... In no, none of that. There's a lot of things that that answers. So in this case, the wife is unmarried, and if she were to reconcile, what would that mean? If the husband is unmarried, what would that mean for him to reconcile? Again, it's marriage equality. The wife remains unmarried or is reconciled. The husband, the same. If you're, if, you're un, if you're divorced from a Christian spouse, you are unmarried, but you need to stay unmarried or else be reconciled. And what would reconciliation lead to? Marriage. You don't reconcile in this way without remarrying, as we would say it. And I believe the Bible says that very explicitly. So the question here is, what do you do? Well, the exception is here, given... If, this, if they divorce, if these two Christians divorce, they should stay unmarried or reconcile with their former spouse. It's very clear. And remember, it's equally applicable, even though it's not mentioned that way. It's equally applicable. What I would say here is that Paul's exception really isn't an exception in the same way. 
but a recognition that Christians still sin. Even though Christ's command is clear, back in Matthew 19, Christ's command is clear, don't divorce. Do I need to say it again, or did you get it the first time? If you're a Christian, married to a Christian, what's the command? Don't divorce. So why does Paul give an exception here about if she leaves or if she is unmarried? Well, I believe that here we understand that Christians still selfishly choose to separate what Christ has joined. Have you ever seen Christians sin? You ever seen Christians sinfully divorce? You ever seen that? How many, you know, if I were to say, how many of you have seen that? Almost all of us would raise our hands. We've seen it. Paul is addressing not what should be, but what is. Even in the church at Corinth, there are Christians who have sinfully divorced. In that case where there's been sin in a separation, when an unbiblical divorce happens, a divorce not based on Christ's exception in Matthew 19, there is an exception in Matthew 19, what Paul is saying here is don't compound the sin. If you have sinfully divorced, you've separated what God has joined, don't pile another sin on top of the first one by remarrying someone else when you unbiblically divorced. That would be considered by Christ, what? Adultery. So at least stay unmarried. And if you want to be married, which you should want to be married, and you should want to reconcile with your spouse that you've sinfully divorced from, what must you do? You must marry them. Because if you marry someone else, it's adultery. So don't do that. So it's, it's, it's Matthew 19 being applied to a different situation and being filled out by what Paul has to add to it. And then thirdly, Paul addresses mixed marriages. To the rest. We have singles, which are unmarried or widows. And then we have Christian marriages, and now we have mixed marriages. And this category addresses any brother that has a wife who's an unbeliever, and any woman that has a husband who's an unbeliever, we know, according to Scripture, that a brother is a Christian, and the equality of the command applies to a Christian woman, which would be weird to call her brother here. <laughs> so we have brothers, and we have Christian women. Brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the idea. And so it applies equally. What's God's command? Now, it doesn't say it's a charge from the Lord. In fact, Paul says, to the rest, I say, I am not the Lord. Well, this is God's command, and I'll explain this in a minute. It's God's command. If the unbeliever consents to remain married, the Christian must not divorce. Now, again, how can I say this is God's command when Paul says, I say this, not I, not the Lord? What Paul is doing is he's comparing what he's going to say here with what he just said. What he just said is basically a very short summary of Christ's teaching in Matthew 19. What he's going to say here, Christ did not teach. But just because Christ didn't teach it doesn't mean it doesn't come from the Lord. This is not advice. This is a charge. This is a command. And the force of it you can feel. You can feel the force of the command in, in, in the writing. But what he's saying here is I'm not summarizing anything Christ said. This is brand new revelation from the Holy Spirit. So here's what the revelation is from God's word. First of all, this command is conditional. Okay? Park, you want to pull up that, the, next, the next slide? The command is, com is conditional. If the unbeliever consents to remain married, the Christian must not divorce. Do you notice the condition? There's an if and there's a then. If the unbeliever that you're married to agrees to remain married, the Christian cannot initiate a divorce. And this makes it clear that becoming a Christian doesn't reset your marriage situation. God's covenant in marriage applies to all marriages, whether the people engaging in the covenant realize it or not. 
I said earlier, the Bible only recognizes marriage as marriage between one man and one woman. But two unbelievers married together are still married in the eyes of the Lord, though they don't recognize it as a covenant with God and with man. They don't, might not recognize it, but it's true. And so therefore, when one of those two unbelievers comes to Christ, it doesn't nullify the covenant already made in the eyes of God, because this is marriage given by God to believers and unbelievers. The covenant's the same. Now, it means far more, and it's far more understandable, in the connection with the Scriptures and with, with, with Christ. But this is a true marriage, unlike the so-called marriages called homosexual marriage or any kind of other marriage. It's true marriage. It's not a Christian marriage, but it's a true marriage. And therefore, coming to Christ doesn't nullify that covenant. Here's the thinking. All right, I came to Christ, and I'm married to a terrible unbeliever. Woo! I got it out. Because when you come to Christ, all things are new. You're a new person. Everything's new. Everything's changed. Everything's uh, set apart. I mean, read earlier in 1 Corinthians. It all has changed, right? And now I can get away from this terrible person. What does is, what is Paul say here from a command from the Lord? Nope. Nope. You cannot initiate. You cannot, because if they still want to stay married, you must remain married. Becoming a Christian doesn't release you from your covenantal vows made as an unbeliever, or made with an unbeliever. Some of you say, well, I was a Christian when I married the unbeliever. Well, yes, of course, you made a sinful choice and a sinful mistake, but now you're stuck. You don't get an out just because he's an unbeliever now. You should have not married him in the first place, or her. I will keep saying him, because that's typically how it goes in our society. Now, this is important because God commands Christians not to marry unbelievers. So right here in 1 Corinthians 7, turn to verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. And then many of you, many of you are familiar with 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 16. This is the do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers passages. So it's clear in Scripture that Christians are not to marry un, uh, unbelievers. They are commanded not to marry unbelievers. And so it's clear there, but what happens if you already are married? That's the point. If you are married to an unbeliever, you do not have grounds for divorce just because they are an unbeliever. And what's the reason? Paul gives a reason for this. The reason is the Christian has a sanctifying effect on unbelieving family members. The reason is this. The Christian has a sanctifying effect on unbelieving family members. Now, there is a lot of confusion when it comes to these words, made holy. The unbelieving husband is made holy. The unbelieving wife is made holy. Our children are holy. Everybody's holy. Presbyterians love this passage, and they abuse it. I won't go into all the details. <laughs> but what I, I believe it's saying here is, well, let me say what it can't mean. It cannot mean that the unbeliever is saved because of their marriage to a Christian. Why not? Because if the unbelieving partner separates... If marriage saved the spouse and saved the children, then the married partner would no longer be unbelieving, but believing, would be a Christian. And so even though you're a Christian and you're married to an unbeliever, you being a Christian doesn't make them, they're still an unbeliever. And the kids are made holy. So what's that made holy have to do with? The word made holy here, this verb can be translated sanctified or set apart, made holy. So what I believe this is saying, well, let me say this also. No one is saved by marriage. No one is saved by birth. And no one is saved by close proximity to a Christian. 
God has no grandchildren. Many of you have heard that one. I got a new one. God has no in-laws. I'm a believer, married to an unbeliever, so, you know, the son-in-law now becomes a Christian. No, God has no in-laws. You're either his child or you're not his child. You don't become a child by God by being close, married to, children of, a believer. Now, so this word made holy is saying that by staying in a mixed marriage, the Christian is not made unclean or defiled by the unbeliever. Here's the worry. I'm a believer. I came to Christ. I'm married to this sinner. I'm married to this person who hasn't repented. I'm married to a pagan. I'm married to a heathen, and they act like it. Will that defile me? Will that defile my kids? What's all the terrible influence that might have on my family? That's a real concern because of everything Paul said earlier about not being defiled as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we have all of those things. What Paul is saying here is that marriage alone doesn't defile you. In fact, the opposite is true. The unbeliever will be influenced by your presence. They don't defile you. You sanctify them. You have a sanctifying influence on the unbeliever. They will be influenced to far better behavior. If you are a faithful Christian spouse married to an unbeliever, you will improve the life of your spouse by your faithful Christian witness and faithful Christian activity. Will you make them a believer just because you are? No. But will they be more holy, more righteous, more obedient to God's laws because you are giving them a good example, quietly living out your faith, encouraging them to righteousness, maybe bringing them to church if they're willing, maybe pointing out the right thing, maybe we shouldn't do that, it's not right, that's a court, that's, yes, you have a sanctifying effect. Does that mean they're saved? No, but you will help them to follow better the commands of God, even as an unbeliever, and they will have a better life because of your sanctifying influence. That's what I believe Paul's saying. You're not defiled. They are sanctified, though not necessarily saved. Now, it's hard for us because the word sanctified is almost always connected to, to a believer. But he's using it differently, the idea of being set apart or made more holy. That's why the translation is holy and not saved. Later, he's going to say saved in verse 16. Here he says holy because he's trying to make a distinction between someone who's born again and someone who is just living a better life set apart more towards obedience to the law of God. Now notice, if this wasn't true, the word otherwise would be foolish. And he says what he says about the marriage because we would be worried about the kids. Are we not worried about the kids? If that wasn't true, that the wife and the husband who are believers have a sanctifying influence on the unbelieving spouse, then your children would be defiled unclean, but as it is, they are also set apart. If an unbelieving spouse makes defilement and uncleanness permanent and fixed, then what would the command be to a believing spouse? Take your kids and run. But he doesn't say that because as a believing spouse married to an unbeliever, your kids are not condemned to unbelief or being defiled, or being unclean. Your influence can be greater than theirs. Now, is that easy? Is that simple? Is it hard work? Is it the best way? And so that's the, that's the reason for the command. So Paul says, but, otherwise, but, as it is, they are holy. The influence of a Christian spouse will have a sanctifying effect on the children now, I want to say this, whether the children trust Christ or not. So Paul could have used the term saved from verse 16 here, but he doesn't. 
He's differentiating on purpose. Now, here's the exception to the command. Notice the exception. If the unbeliever separates, don't fight the divorce. But, verse 15, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. Don't fight the divorce. Why is that? Because in such cases, the brother or sister, the believing spouse, wife or husband, husband or wife, is not enslaved. You are not bound to a former unbelieving spouse. You are legitimately and biblically freed from that covenant. You don't initiate it because God has you there for a reason. Because Now listen to how this works. God has saved you knowing you were married to an unbeliever and he didn't save them yet. Did God know that when he saved you? When God called you, when God set you apart, did he know all of those things? If he saved you married to an unbeliever, and he tells you not to depart, God knows, God understands, he is sovereign over that situation, and therefore you have to understand why you're there. God has you there for a reason. Whether you see it or not, whether you understand it or not, God has you there, you can't just run. But if the unbeliever departs, you are no longer enslaved. <laughs> you are no longer bound, you're no longer linked. Again, divorce truly ends the marriage. You're no longer bound in the eyes of God or in the eyes of anyone else. You are set free from that covenant. You are not bound to them. And the reason for this, of, of not keeping all of these things still tied, though they're, they're, they're separated in other ways, is the goal. The goal is this. God has called Christians to peace. God has called you to peace. God has not called Christians to remain in a mixed marriage when the unbeliever has made it clear that they want out. If you can remain married in a mixed marriage peacefully, then you must do it. That's the command. But if the marriage becomes a place of constant conflict between righteousness and lawlessness, light and darkness, Christ and Satan, then the peace that divorce brings is preferred. Now, divorce is terrible. Almost in every case, divorce makes things worse, even when you're married to an unbeliever, especially when you have children. It will not simplify or make it easy like you wish it would. So marriage in almost every case is preferred over divorce, even in these cases. Yet, if the unbeliever will not remain, the peace of that separated bond, the peace of that broken covenant is better than trying to cling to it by holding on to them. Now, in our no-fault divorce society, you can't even do it if you wanted to. And, you know, not 20, 30 years ago, if you didn't sign, you might be able to hold on to them even though they wanted out. But here, it, the Bible says you don't even have to try. Let it be so. It's very, very practical. Again, the peace of divorce is better than the conflict of a mixed marriage where one spouse, the unbelieving spouse, wants out. Now, let me just be real practical here. This is not going to answer every question you have or every situation that is faced. There's so much more practical advice to be said about how to live in mixed marriages. Paul addresses it others. There's other places in the scripture. You need to know what God has called you to do. And so if you need help, you have questions, you need answers, you need to look at God's word. Do it with a believer. Do it with someone who believes the Bible and can, and can apply it. Don't just struggle with these questions alone. Now, the last verse is pretty fascinating. Because for the most part, I've heard this, this verse used as a reason to stay in a mixed marriage. So the, the emphasis by many is read this way. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Don't divorce, don't separate, don't run from a mixed marriage because you might have a saving influence on your spouse. You don't know whether they're going to get saved. 
I read it differently in light of, of the context. It's talking right and following up on letting the unbeliever separate and leave because how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? And I'm pretty sure, I said this in my notes, I'm pretty sure I've explained it the old way. As, it, as hard as it is, stay in the marriage because you might, it might mean that your spouse will be saved because of your influence. That's how I used to teach it. I've heard it. That's what I believed. I don't think that's the meaning any longer. I think it's the opposite reason. This is to encourage Christians to allow the divorce to happen because how can you guarantee that by staying in the marriage you will save your spouse? Some of you are married to unbelievers. They want out. You're trying to cling to them. You're trying to convince them not to leave. You're trying to do everything because you believe you will have a saving influence. What God is saying is, how do you know you will have a saving influence? But I'll take it and apply it both ways. You don't know if you will have a saving influence by staying or a saving influence by letting them leave. You don't know what God is going to do in your spouse one way or the other. If you stay, are you guaranteeing their salvation? No. If you leave, are you guaranteeing their salvation? No. You can't guarantee it either way. So what must you do? When we try to guess the outcomes by our obedience or disobedience, by our following God's commands or not, we will fail every time. You don't know the outcome. So what's your choice? Obey or disobey? You say, I don't know if they're going to get saved. If I stay, they, they, they might get saved. They might. Or they might not. You don't know. So obey Christ. You can't know, and the key word know is either way. How do you know? And what do we say? We don't know. So obey when you don't know. Because you can't know. So obey. Obey in staying if your spouse wants to remain. Obey in letting them leave if they want to divorce. Obey because you don't know what tomorrow brings. You don't know what God is going to do. Sometimes God will use your continued influence by staying in the marriage to save your spouse. Sometimes they will be saved because they divorce you. You don't know. Trust God, obey God in every case, especially when it's as clear as it is here. Here's where we have to trust that God is saving souls. And he doesn't do it always in the way we wish. And so if you're the unbelieving spouse, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't trusted in Christ, this is the opportunity. Being married to a Christian spouse, as miserable as it might be because you think differently, is for your good and God's glory, and it's for, by God's grace, your salvation. That You'll see the glory of the transformation in your spouse, and you will turn to Christ, and you will be saved. You need to be saved from your sins. It's bigger than your marriage. It's bigger than all the troubles. You need to be saved. And just one word on remarriage after divorce. I'll just say this in passing. If the grounds for divorce are biblical, then the Christian is free to remarry. If you have more questions, see me later. In conclusion, trust God's promise to address every situation in life. God's word addresses every situation in life. Not with specifics always, but with general principles and commands that can be applied accurately. Study God's word to understand how it addresses your specific situation. Study it. Study it out. Study all the passages. We're just dealing with one passage. It's not all the truth. Obey God's commands. Trust and obey. And in the middle of trusting and obeying, study. Study like mad. Study the word of God. And then last, recovering a biblical vision of marriage will transform your life and give a countercultural, God-glorifying witness to a broken and confused world. It's not just about our sexual purity. It's also about our marriages, 
our divorces, our remarriages, our singleness, if we don't recover a biblical vision for all of it, we will be less help to a broken and confused world. But if we are clear in the scripture and we know the word of God and we apply it faithfully and we obey God and trust God, we will be radically different at every stage of life, at every situation, at every part of, of, that God has. And that's God's goodness. And that's our corporate testimony. May God help us. Father, we need you. We need your help and strength. Help us to obey even when it's hard. When it's harder than anything we could imagine. Help us to study, do the work. May no one take my word for it, but may they be like a Berean to know the scripture in all of these categories. And we do pray once again for our unbelieving spouses, unbelieving children, that by our proximity, by our daily witness, they would be saved and then also sanctified. Help us to have uh, an influence in our culture, whether people believe or not, whether they're saved or not. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to the task you've called us to do, trusting in you for everything we need. In Jesus' name, amen.